This is the recording made in the chapter of the open book under the covering title Christian Fundamentals and this is number nine of the subdivision What is Man? It is our custom at these meetings to read a portion of scripture together. And those of you who are listening to this tape recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little time while we read from the prophet Zechariah chapters two, three and four. We are considering in this series particularly the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. <clears throat> There's nowhere else to go to answer the question so intimately and truly, what is man, than these chapters that speak of his creation, his te- testing, his fall, and the promise that was given to him. We have seen that in the first chapter, He was given a great place of dignity, created in the likeness of the image of God. That is to say, he was an anticipation of the second man, the last Adam. We were then shown that by the nature of his creation, he was frail, he was taken from the dust of the earth. The New Testament says that he was not spiritual, he was natural, he was a living soul, And then he was put on probation. He was surrounded by everything he needed uh, but one prohibition, a very small one. And we were looking at the question of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and we asked that we do not emphasise the word evil. We must emphasise both good and evil. They're both there. And there was no temptation to do evil. It was only that you should try to encompass that which belongs to God only. You shall be as God, knowing good and evil. That was the test. Instead of being satisfied with the limited dominion that was given to man, he was tempted to grasp that which was beyond his ken at the time being. And of course we are living in a day now when the idea of travelling to the moon is just an afternoon's excursion. And all these things have come upon us. But whether they are unmixed blessings is another question. You remember the book of Ecclesiastes said, so far as God is concerned, he created man upright, but he sought out many inventions as though that was not to his credit. And as far as we can see, Adam and Eve were a pair of innocents up against a mighty fallen spiritual foe, and they were tempted to attain unto knowledge which was going to be theirs in God's good time, but to make a short cut of it. Because in the epistle to the Hebrews, you remember, that the perfect one, the adult, the full-grown, has their senses exercised to discern good and evil. And in Genesis 3, the man has become as one of us, knowing good and evil. So, a short cut is sometimes a temptation by the wicked one. Our Saviour endured it. Why go through all the agony of the cross? You've come to be a king. He is the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them if you'll just add one act of worship and recognise my position. See? Well now we can't go further over that. We come back to Genesis 3 to look at a few more features that throw light upon this question of what is man. And I've put on the uh, chart here, we had it last time, we're only looking at the top to guide us with the various possible outline, 
you will see under the letter C, human covering leaves. And then further down under the same letter, verse 21, divine covering skin. Well, that's what happened. The moment man was conscious that they had transgressed and sinned, they became conscious of the need of a covering. Now the fact that they made the covering was wrong. But the fact that they felt they needed it was incipient and right. Because all through the scripture, that is what God has done. Provided a covering. The first occurrence of the word covering, which is further later on translated atonement, is found in the story of the flood when at the building of the ark, Noah pitched that ark within or without with pitch. That word pitch gives us the word atonement later on because its one great purpose was not to beautify the ark but to keep the water of judgment out. The next occurrence of that very self-same word which is translated pitch is found later on in the book of Genesis when Jacob is returning and he's afraid of his, of his brother Esau. So he sent a propitiatory gift across the river to placate his brother. And there the word has taken its secondary meaning. Not to put pitch on an ark, but to placate someone who may be incensed against you. And you remember, blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. But the self-same scripture says that while it's a blessed thing to have your sins covered, it's an evil thing for any man to cover his sin. If you cover it, you're covering it up. If God covers it, he covers it because it's cancelled. God never covers up a sin. He exposes it. But he covers it by the ransom which his beloved son has paid. Well now there you get the two. These coats of leaves that were just a temporary expedient were stripped off. And we are told in Genesis 3 that God made them coats of skin. Now, unless there's an extraordinary miracle, coats of skin can only be provided by the sacrifice of the animal. And that's the story. There at the very beginning, when sin entered into the world, we have the human attempt to deal with the matter, which God stripped off. And we have God in figure saying there's only one way. Now, that was reenacted outside the Garden of Eden. Cain and Abel did exactly the same two things. Cain brought an offering of the ground and it was rejected. And Abel brought not only an offering, but he also added the lamb. And we are told in the epistle to the Hebrews that he brought a better or a more of an offering than Cain. And the blood of Abel speaks better things. So now you see, or that other things in the New Testament rather speak better things than the blood of Abel because his was typical. So you see, there's a, a great lesson there that in many ways we could say could occupy the rest of our time. But we are asking, what is man? And here we have man attempting and failing and man being covered by the mercy and grace of God. This is a foreshadowing of every one of us. For very few of us have gone through life without making excuses for ourselves and finding them in vain and ultimately coming and if we don't sing the words, we mean them, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, 
and that thou bids me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. There's truth there for us. Well, the next thing is, the central part of this chapter 3 is God's question and man's answer and the consequences. And again, I think we want to read this with a certain amount of sympathy and not be persuaded uh, by common usage. The common interpretation is that just as every man ever has done ever since, he blamed his wife for all that went wrong. He was putting it upon her instead of facing the fact that he himself had sinned. Well, I don't think that's the legitimate interpretation of Genesis 3. Anyhow, if Adam was wrong when he said, the woman that thou gavest me, if he was wrong to say that, why didn't God rebuke him? God accepted the answer and said, yes, I know that's what you've done, Adam. So shall we look at it again? He says in verse 11, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree, whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? The man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? Don't you see? Now, nearly every person I've ever heard quote this scripture leaves out a couple of words that mean so much. Shutting the book, you say that Adam said, The woman thou gavest me, she gave me. But he didn't say that. He said, The woman thou gavest to be with me. We are told in the New Testament that Adam entered into this with his eyes open. He wasn't deceived. He knew what he was doing. And he said this. He said, I know by the edict of God that I've already lost my wife. She's gone. She's already broken this. Now, I could save myself. I could say, oh no, I won't touch it. But he didn't like to do it. Instead of being a cad, he went the other extreme. He didn't trust God enough to save his wife. But he said, you know, she was given to me in a very special way. And even Moses commented, therefore shall a man cleave unto his wife. And Adam did. And God might have said to him, oh Adam, couldn't you have trusted me? Couldn't you have stood there and he said, the woman that thou gavest to be with me, she gave it to me. And I said, I go with her. Now, in a wrong sense, he was a type of Christ. Adam did wrong. But Christ, he came where we were and shared with us. We won't misunderstand it and justify Adam. But you can see that it's not a right thing to call him a cad that he was blaming his wife. He told God just exactly why he did it. And then when Eve said, she said, the serpent beguiled me. And I did eat. And God said, oh, now you mustn't blame on the serpent. He turned immediately and said, see? So let's be honest in our interpretation. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. There's a mixture here of literal and spiritual, typical. But you can see, here was a, a degradation of the actual beast that was used by the evil one, and was also a foreshadowing of the degradation that was coming upon him as well. 
Well, this brings us, I, I haven't, I admit, I haven't taken very much time over it. This brings us to this great verse, chapter 3.15, which is the seed plot, practically, of the whole Bible, and contains in it all that is practically developed in prophecy and doctrine right through to the end of the New Testament. Let's read verse 15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Here immediately, we've got, say, the answer to that recurring question, why should we always be faced with trouble, anxiety, war, illness, all the way through the life of man. He's never been free from it. Here's the answer. God says, I will put enmity. God says, I will put enmity. From that moment in the Garden of Eden until now, and until the Son of God hands up the kingdom to the Father, that God may be all in all, that enmity goes on unabated. There is warfare between light and darkness, good and evil, Satan and the Son of God, right to the bitter end. Never let us minimize the battle. Never let us minimize the evil power. You remember how it is quoted in the epistle of Jude that even Michael the archangel, when he contended with Satan about the body of Moses, did not bring against Satan a raining accusation, but he said, the Lord rebuke thee. Satan is a mighty foe. And there is no theatricals about the conflict. There's no acting apart. It was a desperate battle, and God threw all that he'd got in. In other words, he spared not his son in order that this evil thing that had come into creation should eventually be dealt with. Why he didn't annihilate this evil immediately by his own omnipotence, we don't know. We can only realize there was a must about it that we shall know perhaps later on. Well now, we read just now, didn't we, the prophet Zechariah. You noticed that they were said to be measuring Jerusalem. And God promised that they should dwell, and he would dwell with them. And God would make his portion. And then immediately, chapter 3, Satan resisting. Now that's the story that goes on through the book. The active opposition of Satan, starting here in Genesis 3, is practically the backbone of all prophetic teaching. Take big strides through the scripture with me without turning to the book. You come presently to Babel and Nimrod. And if you know anything about the ramifications of Babylonianism in the earth, you see what a tremendous thing started there in those days. If you've had no acquaintance with it and you care to go through the book, you'll find Hislop's Two Babylons most interesting. Unfortunately, what he was out to prove, I don't believe, was true. He was out to prove that ancient Babylon and Nimrod was the Church of Rome. I think the Church of Rome is only one of the many daughters of that great harlot mother which is dominating and has done so right from the beginning, the earth. Babel. 
satanic opposition to the purpose of God. When we come to Abraham, the evil one leaves the outside world a little bit and concentrates upon the land of Palestine. So that when Terah held up the obedience of his son and they left over the Chaldees and trekked up country 600 miles and stopped there, it says, and the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Canaanite now becomes the thorn in their side and the great tempter and the opponent. Satan has his agents always on the spot. He believes what, what God has said if some other people do not and antagonizes it right and left. In the days of David, young David goes out to meet who? Goliath, a giant with all the evidences about him that he was a sort of an anti, uh, he was an anticipation of the man of sin. This giant with his armour, and yet young David, with a, a sling and a stone, is used by God to overcome. You see, that which was transacted there is going to be all over again with another gigantic image that will be stricken by a stone cut out without hands, when the kingdom of our Lord shall take the place of the kingdoms of this world. That's coming in the future. And then we've had this reference in Zechariah 3, with the satanic opposition, and God's pledge that one day he will dwell with his people. We come into the New Testament, and as soon as Christ is born at Bethlehem, Herod inquires where it shall be, and he, plot, he plots to annihilate and massacre, so that by so doing he can blot out this seed of Abraham, the seed of David, this king that's been born. In the wilderness, the Son of God is tempted of the devil, but overcomes him as you and I can overcome him, not by exhibiting almighty power, but just humbly and quietly saying, it is written. And when the temptation came, he says, it is written again. Some people give up too quickly. It is written again. And the third time, the evil one left him for the period. Then you remember how there were other attacks made upon him. Suddenly there was a squall on the lake and they were about to sink. And when our Saviour rebuked the winds in the original, he said, be muzzled. He was not merely speaking to a wind, he was speaking to a power. Be muzzled. And there was a great calm. And then we get in our own epistle. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers with the spiritual wickednesses of the rulers of this world. They're there. And when you come at last to the book of the Revelation, the whole pandemonium's there. You get Michael and his angels warring against the devil and his angels. You get that man of sin, the son of perdition, and all the dreadful things that have to take place before the great and dreadful day of the Lord runs out. Here's a book from beginning to end. It wouldn't be true to life if it didn't if it wasn't full of these desperate antagonisms, which all spring from that one word in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity. Now the word enmity is a word that's of, of, of interest for this reason. Most of you know, if you've read the little book or if you've ever heard me speak on the book of Job, how I was rather intrigued when I read the first chapter of the book of Job, to find that although he was a great man in the East, a prince, a wealthy man, he was just called Job. 
Whereas in the ordinary way, he may be called Job the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, be given a certain amount of title to his name. And then I discovered that the Septuagint version has added to the book of Job his pedigree. And he was a descendant of Abraham through Esau, and his name was Jobab. Well now, if a person's name is changed in the Bible, it always means it's changed because it has a typical meaning. Abraham, well, it means a high father. But Abraham, in the Hebrew, means the father of nations. So he had a meaning. Jacob meant a supplanter, but when his name was changed to Israel, it was a prince with God. So, I said, now, if that man's name was originally Jobab, and then it was abbreviated to Job, that's because he now stands as a type. Can you, can you enter into my own feelings when I discovered that the first occurrence of the word Job in the whole Bible is in Genesis 3.15? We couldn't say, I will put Job between thy seed and her seed, but that word Job gives us the word enmity. And there's the book of Job. In the first chapter, we read about something nothing to do with Job's life on earth, but the sons of God coming into the presence of God and Satan among them, and there's that transaction with regard to touching Job except touching his life. Here was the two seeds brought before us. The seed of the wicked one, or Satan himself, doing his utmost against the seed of God. Because Job is said not only to be a just man, but perfect. Two words. Now, the being just is with regard to his own moral character. But being perfect is a word that's used to differentiate the two seeds. Even Jacob is, in our version, says, um, I forget how it goes, but it says in our version about Jacob and Esau, oh, it says Jacob was a plain man. And of course we think that means he was just in contrast to Esau, who was very much the other way. But no, it's exactly the same word that's used of Noah, who was perfect in his generations. Whatever sin and evil Jacob did, he was the true seed, and Esau was not. So we've got now a stress of the two seeds. Look at Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed. As I've said earlier, one critic of mine set out an article to show that there was no such thing as two seeds in the Bible. Well, he, he never quoted Genesis 3.15, for that's a bit awkward, isn't it? The very first occurrence would have said there must be. Surely, if God says, I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed, a simple-minded person like myself says there must be two seeds. Of course, I've had to be corrected, but I'm, I'm still of the same opinion. Two seeds. Outside the Garden of Eden, two sons were born. And Eve was expecting an immediate deliverer. And she looked at that little child that was born into the world and she said, God hath given me this seed. Here he is. The New Testament says Cain was of that wicked one. In the New Testament we have a parable. And although we don't build our doctrine on parables, parables never can lead you astray by their misuse of figures. And we have the wheat and the tares. And they're both called children, not doctrines. The wheat of the children of the kingdom, the tares of the children of the wicked one. 
And our Saviour even said to some in his own day, you generation of vipers. Could he call the true seed of God generation of vipers? Without being accused of using words without meaning. You are of your father the devil, he said to them. So there's enough evidence, if we weigh this over, to realise that there is still the possibility that the war that's going on in this world is between two seeds. Now whatever you do, don't you look at somebody, either in this meeting or when you go outside, don't try to say, size them up, because even the angels were told, no, 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 you need let both grow together under the harvest. You cannot tell, isn't that fine? You cannot tell. So you preach the gospel to every creature. You teach the truth to anyone that will listen. But God alone knows who they are, ultimately. And do remember this, although you keep it perhaps to yourself. Our Lord said in John 10, My sheep hear my voice. Now that's one way of putting it. But he said to the others, You do not hear because you're not my sheep. That's another way of putting it. Have you never spoken to a person and thought, what can I do to penetrate this person? Whatever you say means nothing. Well, don't tell them, unless you feel you must, but it may be an evidence that they're the wrong company. Of course, I know this is getting into depths, but I have a feeling that the scripture teaches that when Adam was put upon this earth, there was a chosen seed in that man. Just the same as when Abraham was living, Levi, who wasn't born, was said to be in his loins. Right the way down. And redemption is not an indiscriminate saving of anybody that likes to believe. Redemption is this, that God says, I will not allow that chosen seed to be finally destroyed or sidetracked. They may go a long way, but I will bring them back ultimately. If you ask the question, would anybody else be saved except the chosen seed? I should tell you, most innocently, that I don't know. I hope so. And I've got one little bit to guide me. When Joshua went into the land of Palestine and was told to utterly and ruthlessly destroy every Canaanite, one little group of Canaanites got through. They pretended they'd come a long distance, dressed themselves up in old clothes and had mouldy bread, and then when Joshua discovered what they'd done, he was tempted to put them to death but God said no it's alright but there'll never be children there'll be drawers of water ewers of wood different character altogether so I don't say it's utterly impossible for one of the outside never to come in but that's not my affair all I'm saying is you hear this primeval promise I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed now this of course must mean first of all Christ but if you stop there, you're not following the teaching of Scripture. So will you turn to Romans, the 16th chapter? Romans, the 16th chapter. Now, the Apostle Paul, who knew this Genesis 3, and was inspired by God to write this, has put these words. Verse 20. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Now Christ has already died. He has already put his, his heel upon Satan's head. So it cannot be referring to the work of the cross when that's already finished. He's referring to the believer. So the two seeds in Genesis, the seed of the wicked one and his seed, the seed of Christ 
and his successors, brethren, believers, or the seed with him. You'll find that the same thing is stressed in the epistle to the Galatians, when it says, And is death not to seeds as of many, but as of one, which is Christ. And yet if you look at the passage it's quoted, you'll find that it's referring to the number of them like the sand of the sea, and yet it's one. So there's no seed outside of Christ that matters, but they're all associated with him. Now we can never accomplish redemption, but if we're associated with a day, as the Romans 16 says, that the, the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly, well then it may be that some of the afflictions we go through now and the temptations we receive and the opposition we get and the blasting of some of our hopes and the upsetting of all our plans is because there's the bruising going on. The attack is still on. We can't expect to have all the glory and not in some measure share with the sufferings. So we come back to the statement in the book of Job, man that is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. And it's not by accident that that's true, that's in the nature of things. By one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And all that's come upon the world since is a part and parcel of that fact. We read, our Saviour says, in the Gospels, he said, the world will hate you, but they hated me before they hated you. And again in the epistle, the whole world lieth, not merely in wickedness, but in the wicked one. Not very happy teaching, is it? But it's good to face facts, isn't it? That's the world in which we live. And one of the titles of Satan is the prince of this world. Another title of Satan is the god of this age. Make no mistake, we're up against a foe. And apart from Christ, victory is utterly impossible. But because of Christ, we can say thanks be unto God that giveth us the victory. Well, let's come back again to Genesis 3 because there are other things to be considered. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Well, there's the conflict. Now, the head of a serpent is its vulnerable spot. And the statement here is that ultimately the head of the serpent shall be crushed. But in the doing of it, the one who does it, he also will suffer. He shall bruise his heel. Now, I would like you to turn to another passage. Genesis 49, verse 17. Just put a little light upon this. Because I suppose very few of us could read Genesis 3 and read about the bruising without immediately thinking of Isaiah 53. He was bruised for our iniquities. And that would be perfectly right. But at the same time, when we look at the original, we find a very peculiar word is used for this bruising. It's not the word used in Isaiah 53. There's many a, a word used in Isaiah 53, bruising, wounding, chastisement, all the many things, a man of sorrows, but that's never mentioned there. But in Genesis 49, we get a clue. Uh, this is a prophetic forecast by Jacob about his sons. He starts with Reuben, 
He comes down at last to Dan in verse 16, and it's in the reference to Dan that we get a little light on this subject. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent far away, an adder in the path that biteth the horse's heels, so that his rider shall fall backward. You see, this particular adder bites the horse's heels. Now, that of itself wouldn't be enough. We'd say, oh, well, that's all right, leave it. But, do you know what the word adder is? Well, you say, no. Well, I can hardly pronounce it, but I'll have a shot at it. Shephiphot. I'll spell it. S-H-E-P-H-I-P-H-O-N. Well, do you know what the word bruise is? In Genesis 3.15. Shuf. That's the word. The word in Genesis 3.15 is the bruising by an adder that bites the heels. So it was a definite word used, not merely a general word for bruising. It was a conflict with the serpent and what you might expect a serpent to do. Now you remember in these scriptures, that is the title, one of the titles, that old serpent or that serpent of antiquity who is called the devil, that's the New Testament word, and Satan, that's the Old Testament word. And that conflict has gone on ever since. Perhaps that begins, perhaps we begin to realise the significance of the fact that when Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, that's a picture of what Christ had to go through. He was made sin for us, who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The serpent had bitten these people, and it was a serpent lifted up that was the symbol of their cure. I'm not going to advocate homeopathy, but there is a system of medical treatment which cures like by like, and that was doing there. It was not a lamb put upon the pole, it was a serpent put upon the pole, and those who looked, they saw on that pole a symbol of that which had brought about their own Suffering and death. And when you look at the cross of Christ, you see two things. You can see from one vision the spotless Son of God. But from another point of view, you see one who was bruised for our iniquities, who was reckoned among the transgressors, who was made sin for us, who knew no sin. The serpent lifted up. And so John 3 says, that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, for God so loved the world, and goes on to put the gift of his Son in the same place as the serpent lifted up upon the pole. Well now, what we've seen is to you say, well, uh, this is a roundabout way of trying to describe or get an answer to the question, what is man? Most of the books I've picked up and glimpsed at, they specialise on arguments about the soul and spirit, and immortality, and it's all necessary. We've touched upon it. But there's a good many other things that we want to know when we're speaking about what is man. Now, I think before we finish this series, we should have to anatomize man a little bit. We'll have to put him on the operation table. And the scripture divides between soul and spirit, so we won't have to do it, we'll find it's done for us. 
and we shall find that man is looked upon as an organism. We are a little bit pernickety sometimes in our reference to certain organs of the body, and it's right that we should. Uh, but nevertheless, God has made them. And that makes a person, an individual. Look at the number of times it speaks about the bowels. Bowels of mercy. Bowels. And if you're anything like me, and you have to face an ordeal, you know that's a literal fact. And God has so made us. There was an occasion many years ago when I was sitting in the dining room of Dr. Moss in West Kirby and the doctor's wife was sitting at the other side of the room and a little tap came on the door and a lady put round, her head round the door and she looked across to me and she said, I need not be reserved in front of you professional men and away she went 19 to the dozen all about things that I ought never to have heard. Well, when she did stop for a minute and take breath, I slipped this bit in. I said, do you know when the psalmist said, wake up my glory, he was speaking about his liver? Oh, she looked at me. I said, look, I don't say you say that the lungs are called the lights, but some people call them that because it's the lightest organ of the body. Now, in the Hebrew, the word glory is the word weight. Why, Paul, who wrote the New Testament, says, the light affliction and the weight of glory. And the heaviest organ in the body is your liver. And it's got exactly the same name as the word glory. So when the psalmist said, wake up my glory, he said, wake up your liver. Oh, she said, and went out. When the doctor visited her in his rounds next day, she said, who was that? And when she discovered I wasn't the doctor, but I was down there to teach the scriptures, for my benefit, she saw the funny side and she was a wealthy woman. She went to her cabinet, she picked out three five-pound notes and she said, take him back for his fee. That's the only time I've had a fee of being a doctor. <laughs> but you say, why tell us this? Don't you see? The scripture says, you've got reins. You've got reins, did you know that? Where are they? What are they? We speak about believing with our heart. I think one of these times before we finish with what is man, we'll have to look at all soul and spirit and reigns and heart and glory and what not, see? So there's many things. Then I think we ought to at least give an attention to the fact that man is divided up into nations. And some of the problems that we have, when you look at a Chinese or you look at a Negro and you look at a person from our part of the world, we look different, don't we? Well, what about it? What answer is there to it, you see? So there's many a thing that we've got to pursue, and yet it's so definitely said in the scriptures when it's all said and done, God hath made of one blood all nations of men to dwell upon the face of the earth. And that is a fact. However different we may look in appearance, the transfusion of blood can still go on. So here we've been skimming and only hinting at this central verse in Genesis 3, but I think you will realise with me that it is a sea plot. Enmity. The enmity was put by God. We don't blame anybody else for it. He put it there on purpose. And God has no intention that you and I should have a quiet, easygoing, happy sort of life while there's a war on. You don't expect it in the ordinary affair. We've had meetings in this chapel when I said I could not possibly conflict with a flying bomb that's going overhead. There it went roaring over this chapel. I even said to the folks, if it stops, well, you've just got a few seconds, halfway through this chapel, you go over there on the stairs, you go over there and I'll get back here. That's all we could do. We had to put up with it. 
When we got out into the outside, we didn't know whether we were coming or going, for it was simply black night. Oh yes. Well that's only, that's only small in comparison with the spiritual warfare that's on, the enmity that's here. Enmity there all the time, in all phases and aspects and shapes. So when you murmur again, as you and I do, just remind yourself, brother, sister, there's a war on. But although that may be so, we've got comfort, haven't we? Weeping may endure for night, but joy cometh in the morning. When it's all over, and we look back, then we'll realise something of what we've been through, what grace has done. And we can anticipate that day, even now, by saying, I am persuaded that not only is there no condemnation, Romans 1, 8, 1, but no separation, last verse in the same chapter, and that we walk with him, our captain, has not left us to fight our own battles. He's with us, every step of the way. So may the Lord grant that as we pursue these subjects, we should not be so engrossed with some technical thing that we don't allow it to be used by God to take a wider sweep, have some word that will help us on our way, manifest that we belong to him, as well as get a little further knowledge about some particular word or truth as it occurs in the scriptures. Remember particularly that if you want a classic on the battle of the two seeds, and you can plough through the book of Job, you'll discover not only the satanic attack at the beginning, but you'll know that the scripture says, you've heard of the patience of Job, and if you see the end of the Lord, you go right through the book. It comes out at the end, everything doubled. If you count the number of asses and methody and sheep he had at the beginning, they're exactly doubled at the end. And there's even this, that his three daughters, were famed for their beauty throughout the land, even though Job was so marred and scarred. In fact, one of them, Karen Hafak, means a paint box. But as I've reminded some, I don't remind anybody here, the complexion of Karen Hafak was never handed over a chemist's counter. It was the real thing. It was a picture of restoration that God could do. As he said, his flesh shall come again like a child. That was said to Job in that day when he restores by resurrection, that which the evil one has so far robbed and taken away. So may the Lord give us grace to remember that if we have been connected with the first Adam and involved in sin and death, there is another one who is named Adam in the New Testament, the second man, the last Adam. And that means to say we shall have to have another examination. And we'd have to perhaps take it up the very next time. What do we mean by being in Adam? Well, you say that's everybody. Well, we'll leave it pendant then till next time and find out from the scriptures what it means when it says, as in Adam, all die. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. May the Lord bless our meditations and teach us and keep us in the way of his commandments that we do not override or overlay with our own thoughts that which God alone can describe and explain to us.